path of God for some weeks now, and we concluded the first chapter of Romans last week. And before we move on and start the second chapter, I want to spend this weekend uh, talking a little bit more about what the Bible has to say uh, concerning homosexuality. Paul points that up in that uh, latter part of that first chapter and as an example, and indeed as the example, of the, uh, the depth of vileness to which men go when God gives them over, when God removes his restraining hand against sin. And I, as, as we look into the scriptures, I, I, want to, I want to make a statement that I think is important for us to understand. I believe that the Bible is God's word. I believe that the Bible is God's statement about what is true and right, about how we can order our life, and about every issue that has to do with our life, with the life of the church, with morals, with ethics, with everything that will absolutely affect our life. I believe that the Bible is God's word. And as such, I believe that I can go to it and I can read it, and I can study it, and then I can find out what God thinks on any topic, any subject, any issue, and how I should then respond to that particular issue. Now, we are in, a, in the midst of a culture that has gotten away from, uh, largely gotten away from uh, any kind of a, a biblical or Christian consensus uh, we have never really been a Christian nation as such, but we have been largely uh, affected by uh, a biblical uh, perspective from our foundation, and uh, our constitution was founded on biblical perspectives and so forth. But I, I think that as we look around, we see uh, a great shift and a move away from a biblical standard, morals, things that are absolutely right and things that are absolutely wrong. Uh, we become a very relativistic society. Uh, if it feels good, you know, do it as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And uh, even that's relative uh, in interpreting how is somebody going to be hurt. But it's important for us to understand and, and to reaffirm that we can only speak to these issues with any degree of conviction if we see and believe that the Bible is the revealed Word of God and it has something definitive to say, especially on this particular subject. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So I want to settle that right, right off the bat. Now again, as Paul has been talking to us about the wrath of God, he said that the wrath of God is being revealed, and, and how it's being revealed, and the reasons it's being revealed, is because man basically has rejected God, turned away and gone to, and done his own thing. And when he turns away from God, he turns to idolatry. He turns to uh, uh, worshiping uh, in the midst of false religions. Not every religion is a pathway to God. Every religion other than Christianity is a pathway away from God. And Paul spells that out for us in this first chapter. That men turn to false religions when they turn away from God. They're not seeking God. And when they turn away from God and they find themselves in the midst of idolatry, and incidentally, you don't have to be worshiping 
an idol made of stone or rock or, or steel or anything like that to be involved in idolatry. When people turn away from God, they, they, they right away turn to worshiping themselves. And in our society, though people are, may not be worshiping at shrines and idols and so forth, uh, when they turn away from God, they're worshiping themselves. They set themselves up as their own standard. And we see how as a result of these kinds of things and this kind of, of idolatry, that God gives men over, Paul says, and he gives them over to immorality. When people are involved in immorality, automatically that means they're already involved in idolatry. They're already turned away from God. They're serving other gods, themselves, some other thing, something is in the place of God in their life, and they are involved in immorality. And then he points out to us that the, the ultimate example of perverseness and immorality is homosexuality. Now, in our society, to say that publicly, you invite incredible rebuke and uh, jeering. The church today is being mocked and laughed at uh, because the church is taking a stand on this issue. There are some wings of the church, the more liberal aspects of the church, that have not taken a stand, that have caved into public pressure, that have caved into the special interest groups, and who are, in fact, ordaining homosexual men and women to the ministry. And I'm here to tell you that that is flat wrong and counter to what God's Word has to say. And there is no way on earth that you can justify it. Not for a person who is a practicing homosexual. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say, what God's Word has to say about this particular aspect of mankind's behavior. Now, in a society, when people approve of anything that's wrong, it's not long before that whole society begins to drift in that direction. Even people who are, to them, homosexuality is abhorrent. It's, it's detestable, something that they would have no part of. And in and of themselves, they, 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 they can never picture themselves involved in any kind of homosexual behavior. They're fully heterosexual. Should that individual begin to give hearty approval to that lifestyle and continue to do so in turning away from God and God's standard, God gives men over to sin. This person finds themselves immersed in immorality of their own sort. And it is very possible that that person may even drift off into homosexuality at some point. You see it in every culture that has fallen, every civilization that has been uh, in power in this world, that at, at the time of the fall of that civilization, homosexuality was at the forefront and it was being given hearty approval of by the rest of the population. More and more and more people gave themselves over to it and it starts with approving it. Well, it's not so bad for those people. It's not so bad. And when a society begins to think that way, God gives that society over, and more and more people will be drawn into that perverseness, and they will be going more and more in that direction. And so it's, it's vitally important for us to understand that very principle. Now, as we look into the Scriptures, I want us to look at a couple of other examples prior to getting into homosexuality specifically. I want us to look at a couple of other things 
that the Bible has to talk about that are akin to this. And we know them as uh, uh, transvestite or transvestism and transsexualism. And I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter in the Old Testament. Now these have a bearing on this whole topic because in, in God's view, and in, certainly in the ancient East, these were no, uh, nothing other than disguised forms of homosexuality. They were very specific forms of homosexuality. Now I know that uh, you tried to say that to a person who is, who is living in, as a transvestite or living as a transsexual, and they'll fight you every inch of the way, but you think through it and you see very clearly that they are disguised forms of homosexuality. They also blur the distinction between the male and the female roles as God has created men and women. And not only that, but they are involved in and were vital parts of the cultic, idolatrous practices of these ancient nations, and hence the same principles hold true today. People will involve themselves in these things because they are essentially involved in idolatry. They've turned away from the true God and His truth. And you think, well, now wait a minute, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, I, I know some people who have been involved this way, they're nice people, and they've had terrible upbringings, and they're very confused people. They are very deceived people, and they have been making choices to affirm the deception. And no one has had the courage, nor the understanding, nor the compassion to come along and show them and point out to them where the choices are wrong and how they're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. The whole time, people are saying, well, you know, I, I don't know what to say, so we just ignore it. And we can't approach people with graciousness and compassion and truth and tell them what they're doing is wrong. The Bible gives us all sorts of instruction. Look at the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, the 5th verse. It says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now some people have read that passage and they have, they have found a basis in there for saying, well, see, women shouldn't wear slacks. Uh, the only problem with that is that when this was written, men didn't wear slacks. So I, I think you have to be able to interpret these things in the context in which they were originally written. But the whole purpose is when... When it's written here, uh, men's clothing or women's clothing, it's a more general term than clothing. It's in the original Hebrew passage. It's a, it's a, the idea is that a woman should not put on men's things. She should not in, in, involve herself in men's things. And, and also, a man should not involve himself in women's things. He should not adorn himself as a woman. He should not be involved in... in, in female kinds of things. Why? Because, because the distinction between the male and the female uh, becomes uh, blurred at that point. Men begin to take on feminine qualities that God never intended for them to take on. Men become soft and effeminate. And when a woman crosses over into the things of a man, she becomes impudent and bossy and bold. No, things that God did not mean for women to be nor to express. 
And we see in these ancient cultures, and if you read about the ancient idolatrous cultures, uh, you see many times where even the gods uh, would, they would switch roles. One time they'd be uh, pictured as male, another time pictured as female, and back and forth and so forth. And the people would pick up these varieties of roles. There's confusion in the minds of people about who they are and what God's design is for them. And it's right out of the pit of hell. And so God says when people do this, it's detestable. Don't do it. And what he's describing here is, is uh, quite frankly, a transvestite who likes to wear the clothes and the things and likes to involve him or herself in the things of the opposite sex. And that is none other, in my mind, than a disguised form of uh, homosexuality, a very specialized form of it. Over in the 23rd chapter, we're told that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Someone who has uh, altered their sexual organs, God finds detestable. He doesn't want anything to do with those people. He does not want them in his assembly. Again, why? Because it's a distortion of his design. And people people have a, a mental image about their sexuality... It's a perverted, deceived image, and it doesn't correspond with their physical appearance, and so they make a decision to alter the physical appearance to fit with how they think they are, rather than going to the Lord and say, Lord, heal my thinking, straighten my thinking out so that my thinking aligns with what you have made me, rather than going off and have sexual reassignment surgery which is an abomination to the Lord because it defiles his creation. And again, it, uh, it was something that was done. They were uh, occultic worship practices where uh, people would uh, become uh, eunuchs and they could be male or female prostitutes in the temples uh, during those ancient worship practices. And the same thing is happening today on a much more subtle basis. And so these things are important to understand that they're precursors, in my mind, to homosexuality. They're part of the whole overall picture. So it's important to understand that. I want you to look with me over in uh, 1 Samuel. Now, what we're going to talk about now is we're going to begin to describe homosexuality, but before we do so, I want to speak with you about the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, I want to speak with you about how people justify sinful behavior. Now, we're all sinners, right? And uh, the Bible says that when we sin, we should confess our sin, and God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's something in the flesh that resists confessing, isn't there? There's something in the flesh that doesn't want to admit guilt, that just kind of wants to just ignore it, shy away from it, maybe even justify it. And the same thing is true with every single person, and especially in the homosexual community. There, is a, there are a group of churches called uh, the Metropolitan Community Church, which uh, started by a fellow by the name of Troy Perry, and uh, these people claim to be born-again Christians, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and simultaneously live 
an avowed, practicing homosexual lifestyle, claiming that the Bible supports it and gives validity, that there is a plan, there's a place in God's plan for the homosexual. You say, well, how in the world can they justify that? How can they say that the Bible says it's okay? Because they point to the Bible and, says, and they say that the Bible says it's okay and we can point to it and we can show you an example, a classic example of a homosexual relationship in the Bible that God smiles upon. The example they point to is the relationship between David and Jonathan. And I, that's why I want you to turn to 1 Samuel. I want you to see how, how men have perverted and twisted God's word to support their sinful behavior. Unwilling to bow to his will and unwilling to bow to the truth, they're going to twist and pervert God's word. The 18th chapter of 1 Samuel. I'm just going to read several verses to you, and I want you to, I want you to notice how ridiculous this claim is. Chapter, one, or chapter 18, verse 1, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, can you see clearly the homosexual relationship there? You must surely see it. Now, if you do see it, then you've got a problem. I've read that verse many times. I have never once seen in that verse a homosexual relationship. Verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Loved him as himself. Gave him everything he owned. You can obviously see in there a homosexual relationship. Look at verse 12. Saul, now this is the king, Jonathan's father, King Saul was afraid of David because he was gay. Is that what it says? No. He was afraid of David because what? The Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Now, do you suppose the Lord would have been with David if David was in an active homosexual lifestyle? No! And we'll go on to see this further in Scripture. Look at chapter 19. Verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. You can see that David was a favorite around the court. <clears throat> now, get this next, this next sentence. But Jonathan was very fond of David. Now, the, the verses I'm pointing out to you are the very verses that the gay community professing to be Christians will point to and say, these verses prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's no way these verses point that out. They were very fond of one another. And that means they're saying that they were involved in a homosexual relationship. Turn to chapter 20. Look at verse 3. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. We're friends. And again, another verse that the Metropolitan Community Church and those supporters point out to say that, that the Bible supports homosexuality. Verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan 
And he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, meaning David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Now I suppose that if you tried real hard, you could read into that passage some sort of a homosexual overtone. Now if Saul indeed meant that, and there's no way to prove that that's what he was meaning. If indeed he meant it, that's probably what you could expect from Saul, who himself was deranged, was fearful, was twisted, certainly afraid of David. That's something you could expect from Saul to say. But again, there's no basis in fact that that supports their claim that this is a homosexual relationship. Turn with me to the 41st verse. After the boy had gone, now David and Jonathan had some prearranged situation in which they were going to signal one another, and, and a young boy was involved. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground, and then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Now it's at this point where they will say, well, see, see, look at it right there. They kissed each other. This was not a homosexual kiss. This was two men who loved each other as men can love each other. Two men who could unabashedly kiss one another. They were about to part and never see each other again. And they both knew that. There's a very strong bond between them, but it was not a homosexual bond. There are men in my life that I love dearly. There are men in my life that I, I unabashedly will hug and kiss. Now, they may not like it, but I kind of like it. <laughs> when Don Stewart was in the hospital, before I left him, I gave him a big hug and kissed him. He wiped it all off. <laughs> Don't do that again. But you see, it's not unmasculine to hug and to kiss another man. And yet, this is the bias that these people are coming from, and they're pointing to this as a homosexual relationship. No proof of that. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, the first chapter, just a few pages further on. The first chapter of 2 Samuel, this is a killer verse. This is the verse that really they hang it all on. Chapter 1, verse 26. Saul and Jonathan are dead. David has just received news of their death, and he is grieving the death of both of them. In a verse 26, David, David says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love was wonderful. Your love for me was wonderful. Now look at this. More wonderful than that of women. <gasps> there it is. Right there. That proves it. Does that prove it? No, it doesn't prove it. Again, if you understand that the love that these two men had for one another, it's totally different than a love that a man could have for a woman or a woman could have for a man. Totally different. 
This is not some kind of illicit relationship, some kind of illicit love. In those days, men, though they cared for women, though they cherished women, men did not share the things of men with women. Men shared their ideas, their ideals, their goals, their hopes with other men. They didn't share those things with women. And so it's very real to have that kind of relationship and to have David grieve and to say of Jonathan's love for him that it was, it was more wonderful than a love of a woman. Incredible. And yet the, the Metropolitan Community Church and the, the homosexual community that professes to be Christian uh, uses these verses to support uh, their position. I just want you to see how the Bible can be twisted and perverted to support any kind of position that anybody wants to take. Now, what does the Bible say about this uh, homosexuality issue? Turn with me to Genesis, the first chapter. We probably should go right back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It's the last day of creation. God creates man. Verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and what? Female. There's two types, two kinds to man. There's no third kind. And he goes on and he says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number. Now, I want you to understand something. In order to be fruitful and increase in number, it has to be a male and a female. Two males cannot increase in number. Are you with me on this? It's important to get. Two females cannot increase in number. Does that make sense to you? Good. It's got to be a male and a female. And that's what God originally created. This is not some societal thing. This is creation. And the fruit of that coming together is a child. Two men can't make a child. Two women can't make a child. It's got to be one man, one woman. That's God's design. That's how he intends it from the very beginning. Does that make sense? Are you sure? I mean, this is important to get. This is basic stuff. Okay? No sooner has God created the original design than immediately Satan seeks to pervert it. And in the third chapter, you have the fall, what's known as the fall of man, where man falls in disobedience from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection to a state of sinfulness. In the context of that fall, we see the estrangement of man from God, separation in the relationship now between man and God. We see the estrangement in the relationship between man and himself. He has to cover up. He can't stand to be transparent. And not only is there estrangement between him and God and him and himself, there's estrangement between him and his woman, his wife. In fact, the estrangement is so real that in face of the sin that he's committed of disobedience, when God comes and confronts him with it, he denies it. He says, it's not my fault. She did it. In fact, it's worse than that. You made her. It's your fault, ultimately. Incredible. And so we see Satan distorting right from the very beginning, creating estrangement 
in context of relationship. It doesn't stop there. In the fourth chapter, the 19th verse, you don't need to turn there, but you might want to write this down. You meet Lamech, and with Lamech is the introduction of polygamy. Again, it's a frustration of God's design of one man, one woman for life. It doesn't stop there, though. In the 12th chapter, the 17th verse, we see the threat of adultery enter in. Again, Satan attacking from another angle, God's design. In chapter 19, we see incest and homosexuality begin to raise its ugly head. In chapter 34, verse 2, we see the threat of rape. And in chapter 38, you see the threat of prostitution begin to raise its head. Now, I want you to turn with me to chapter 19 of Genesis. And I want to look at the classic passage that describes homosexuality and how God deals with it. Now, in chapter 18, God and two angels have come and visited Abraham and have told him that they are going to destroy the cities of the plain. Now, Abraham has a nephew, Lot, and his family living in Sodom. And so Abraham bargains with God and says, God, would you destroy it if there's uh, 40 righteous people? And then he keeps bargaining with God and gets it down. And God says, no, I won't destroy it as long as there's a few righteous people there. But God says, you better get them out of there because it's going to get destroyed. Now, in the 19th chapter, after that visit between God, the two angels, and Abraham, we're told, <clears throat> verse 1 of the 19th chapter, the two angels arrived at Sodom. God wouldn't go. He sent the two angels on ahead. Now, they get at Sodom in the evening. We're told that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, that's in the city square. That's where the people would meet and congregate. The men would discuss business. That was the center of city business. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Now, he doesn't even know these guys, but he's going to be hospitable to them and invite them into his house so that they can be refreshed. Isn't that nice of Lot? Shows good upbringing, huh? They said, no, we think we'll spend the night in the square. And Lot says to them, oh, no, 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 you don't know Sodom. You won't make it through the night. You best come to my house. Otherwise, it's going to be all over for you. So Lot persists. Verse 3 says, but he insisted so strongly that they did not go, <clears throat> that they did go with him and entered his house. And he prepares a meal and so forth. Verse 4 says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Now that's hospitality, wouldn't you say? Welcome these two strangers. Well, now wait a minute. How, how do we know that this is the proper interpretation? How do we know that they really wanted to have sex with these guys? Well, let's read on and let's see what, it, what else the account has to say. Verse 6 says, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. He said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. What wicked thing? Exchange names and addresses? Is that so wicked? Well, let's read on a little bit further. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let, them, let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like. Oh, no, Lot. How gross. Are we kind of getting the picture of what these guys standing outside want? They want to have homosexual relations with these two men. 
They're angels. They don't know it, though. They're in for a big surprise, by the way. And Lot would rather give over his own two virgin daughters rather than have these men commit that vile, wicked thing. Incredible, isn't it? Verse 9 says, Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow, meaning Lot, came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. So he's judging us. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. You can remember what Paul said in the first chapter, how even the men were inflamed with their lust for one another. That they were burning out with an insatiable appetite and passion for other men. You see it reflected right here. They're pressing against the door. They're not going to take no for an answer. They're going to get in there and get these two guys. And here's poor Lot standing against the door all by himself. <laughs> Look what happens. But when the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door, and then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The implication is they're continuing to search out the door. You'd think that if they were struck with blindness, they'd run away, they'd get the message, they'd say, whoa, we're doing something wrong here. But they don't. Their appetite is insatiable, they're unrestrained, nothing is going to stop them. And then the two men said to Lot, do you have family in this town? Lot said, yes. And they said, you better get them out of here, because verse 13, we're going to destroy this how does God look on homosexuality? Leniently? No. It's a vile corruption of his design, of his purpose, and he is going to destroy any society that gives approval to it. And we see that happening in our, own, in our own society today. Now I want to make two more comments on this particular passage. When you point this passage up to a person who is practicing homosexuality and, and using the Bible to validate his or her lifestyle, and you use this passage just to prove that it's wrong, and they're in error, they'll say to you, well, God, yes, I agree, God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, the reason he destroyed it was because the people were not being hospitable. There's another reason that is put forth for the destruction of Sodom, and it's not because of the sin of homosexuality or all the, any of the other vile things that were going on. It's, it's that, well, yes, God did destroy it because of the homosexuality, but really the reason is that these men wanted to have sex without being married to those other men. That's why God destroyed them. And that's not the reason. I want you to see how important it is to understand this because people are going to rationalize and they're going to justify and they're going to twist and warp the scriptures and that is not what the scriptures say. Turn to Leviticus. The 18th chapter of Leviticus.
verse, um, let's see, 18th chapter of Leviticus, verse 22. This is what the law says. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. It's an abomination. Vile in God's sight. What would happen if a man would lay with a woman or vice versa? Turn to chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 13. If a man lies with a man, as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Why must they be put to death? Because they're going to infect the whole rest of the society. And God deals with that very strictly, and he wants it cut out like a cancer. You say, well, that's awfully... Should we stone people today? Should we put people to death today? God's judging them already. Isaiah, the 56th chapter, verses 3 through 5, sets forth for us God's mercy and his forgiveness when people will confess their sin and turn him in faith and say, I have been wrong. And they turn to him. But if people are unrepentant and unwilling to turn to the Lord, there is no forgiveness, and they are going to die. They're going to go to hell. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. What's the New Testament say? Turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The standard is still the same. Homosexuality is still detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus did not come to set up a different standard. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Fulfill the requirement by keeping the law with his life and fulfill the requirement of death by dying for sinners so that sinners could have an opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Look at 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. The 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians, start with verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And now his list is not exhaustive. It gives us examples of wickedness. And he's talking about people who are living, continuing to live the same kind of lifestyle, regardless of what their mouth is professing. The lifestyles they're living... Paul is saying these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to enumerate some examples. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, and the, the uh, word, the root word for male prostitute is the word that, we, that means soft. And I think that that would encompass the idea of the transvestite or even the transsexual, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor slanderers, nor swindlers, and other places say not even liars, people who are inveterate liars and unrepentant about it, disobedient to their parents, these are what the Bible describes as wicked people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and that is what some of you were. There's some in the midst of the society there in Corinth that were all of these things. There's some people even in our congregation who were liars and thieves and adulterers. There may be even be people who were murderers who God has forgiven. There are certainly, I know, people who struggle with homosexuality and come out of that lifestyle that God has restored them totally. I had someone share with me this morning that after years and years in that lifestyle, that God had redeemed this person's life. Perfectly. Wonderful. It's possible. And as we try to relate and understand and communicate God's grace and His love, in the midst of sin, we have to be able to remember that God hates the sin, not the sinner. And while many people in the church today find homosexual people revulsive, repugnant, they hate them, they don't want anything to do with them, they're detestable people, we've got to make a distinction between the person and the sin. We've got to be able to look with compassion on the eyes of the sinner and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. And I care about you enough to say this to you. God can heal you and give you a brand new life and restore the years that the locust has eaten if you turn to him in faith. But I've been, I was born this way. That's the only thing I know. There, there, there is no other way of life for me. I was born this way. Yes, I understand that. I understand that you were born with a sinful nature. I was born with a sinful nature. We're all born with a sinful nature. We're all born with a proclivity towards sin. And we're tempted all at different places. But the issue is not to make choices to give in to those temptations, no matter how strong they might be. And we can reach out to other people. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're the only people, the church of Jesus Christ in the world today, are the only people who have access to the truth. We're the only ones that can reach out to other people and say, this is wrong, this is right. I can pray for you and I can bring you into fellowship and God can heal you. God has given me that privilege. The church is the only group of people that can do that. No one else has access to the truth. No one else has access to the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to pray for the sinner for healing and restoration. Isn't that exciting? And it is so freeing it is so freeing when people understand that it's sin. There is no such thing, technically speaking, as a homosexual person. It's sin. And when people are brought to an understanding that it's sin and that they can be forgiven and healed of sin, their whole life will change dramatically. But we're the ones who get to take the message, who get to share it with other people. They're not going to know this all by themselves. God's given them over. They're depraved. They're lost. 
They're deceived and blinded to the truth, and we can take the truth to them. But we have to understand and see what the Bible has to say about that whole subject. God is a great God. He loves people. He wants to save them. And he wants to reach out to them that they might know the truth also. And we get to participate in that great and mighty plan of his. There's lots and lots of things that the scriptures have to say, but we just don't have time to go into them this morning. Pray about these things. If you have a family member, friend, an acquaintance on your job who's involved in a homosexual lifestyle, don't validate it. And don't turn your head and just pretend like it's not there. If you really want to do a number on that person, you just go ahead and tell them it's okay. And you'll consign them to eternity in hell. If you really care, if you really do love them, you'll pray through the agony of confronting this issue, talking through it with them, going over and over, showing them the scriptures, inviting them into Christian fellowship where they can be healed. If you don't care, that's a different story. Jesus has called us to care, hadn't he? Awesome, isn't it? Awesome. We can make a difference. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the surety of your word. Lord, that we can count on it. That, Lord, that you love sinners, but you hate sin. Lord, I pray that each of us would look into our own lives. And, Lord, though it seems as we've jumped with both feet on the homosexual this morning, that we'd not forget verses 28 through 32 in the latter part of that first chapter of Romans that describes every other kind of depravity that most of us could relate to. Lord, we're all sinners, and you've saved every one of us. You've given us all a new life, new hope, and salvation. Father, nothing is impossible for you if people turn to you. I pray, Lord, this morning that there be any people who are struggling with any kind of sin in their life. That, Lord, that they would turn to you this morning in repentance. And they would cry out for your strength and your help. And, Lord, that they would commit themselves to you. That you would free them from the bondage of sin. Lord, even if there be a, a testimony or two this morning that people would share that we might see living proof and hear the words of people who have been redeemed by your grace from the depths of sin. Lord, I pray that you put it on the hearts of those people to share those testimonies this morning. We love you, Lord. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.